No Limit, the 90s Eurodance podcast, the lockdown interview special. Hi, Ed here flying solo for a very special edition of No Limit, the 90s Eurodance podcast. So we're calling it the Lockdown Interview Special. That's because I spoke to this person in lockdown. Now, what can I say about this individual? I've probably been wanting to speak to him since I was about 11 or 12 when I was listening to his music constantly on my Sony Walkman. He is behind such huge hits as He's On The Phone, as well as Break The Chain, Rocking For Myself, and remix everybody from the Spice Girls to the Pet Shop Boys to Dana Dawson. Uh, you name it, he's worked with them. His remixes for Pulp, literally blew the charts open. So I'm really excited to talk to Steve Rodway, aka Motivate. Uh, so the interview is coming up. But before that, can I just remind you, if you want to get in on the conversation, find us No Limb Pod on Instagram. That's No Limb Pod on Instagram, where Ben is constantly sharing content. It's really good fun. And you can listen to all of our past episodes, including brand new 1993 featuring Elise Rogers, the voice of Max has just been released on SoundCloud today, so go and have a look. But you can also listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and please subscribe, give us a review. All of your um, input and contributions go towards making the podcast better. So thank you so much for listening so far. And here is the interview that I had with Steve Rodway earlier on this year, aka Motivate. Please enjoy. the 90s Euro dance podcast with me, Ed. Ben is never present at these interviews, but also it's lockdown, so we're having to do things remotely anyway. However, I have such a special guest. I'm such a fan. I'm going red already. I can just, just sense it. Uh, it's Steve Rodway, otherwise known as Motivate. How are you? I'm good, good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad at all. I'm a little bit kind of... I get... See, with these interviews, we've had Tinker from Clock... We've had Victoria Newton from Strike, we've had Rosalla, we've had Shenna Winchester, and I just get all starstruck and tongue-tied, so forgive me. I, you're forgiven. <laughs> you haven't got a star anyway. I'm just a normal bloke. You're I made a, a bit of music. You're a star to me, Steve, an absolute star. Yeah. Um, motivate this. So, uh, earlier, I was watching uh, like a classic video of your pop stardom um, as Rodway. So... Yes. When did when did that happen, and how did it kind of then, kind of transform into being a really successful dance music producer and remixer? Um, it happened. Let me just turn this air conditioning off. Right, that's good. Um, so that was when I went to America mm. in the, in the eighties, and you know, really just chanced my arm as far as um, I went over there some crazy thing i followed a girl over there like you like you do like i do um <laughs> in the early 80s and um ended up kind of getting myself involved with the music scene as it was then and actually it was pretty 
it was it was it was I was in the right place at the right time because of course we had the new romantics and Duran Duran and Spandau and all that sort of stuff was was starting to or was big uh, in the UK and um, was crossing over to America. And they all wanted to get in on that sound. Mm. And I found myself literally in the right place at the right time. Um, and I um, met a guy who put the money up to make this record that I'd written called Don't Stop Trying. And the next thing I knew, uh, we were recording it in a studio in New York City. And then um, I got a record deal mm. with um, effectively with a, a, a label uh, called Millennium Records, which was part of RCA. And um, the guy who ran it was a very well-known, I, I didn't know him, but he was a very well-known uh, producer called uh, Jimmy Einer, um, and or, or had been in his day. He was he, he produced all these bands that I hadn't heard of, except for one, mm. um, called, one artist called Don McLean. And of course, of course. I knew yeah. the classic American Pie. Mm. Um. And so, uh, you know, I thought, okay, well, that, that, that sounds good. And I, and I um, made this album called Horizontal Hold. And uh, he was a very wise kind of produ ex-producer himself. And he, he'd tell me all these stories, how he'd put John Lennon with Elton John to write whatever gets you through the night and all these things, mm. and all these big, big names he was throwing around and like that. And he, I remember him telling me when I made the album, he said, and after you finish the album, you'll be really depressed a couple of, for, for a couple of months because you'll have nothing to do. And it will have been such a big thing in your life that suddenly comes to an end. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he was quite right, actually, because when I did finish the album, it was kind of, well, what do I do now kind of thing? But actually I was, I was lucky because I was carried along uh, by the momentum gathered by uh, that first single called Don't Stop Trying, which I, I think, it's one of those landmark moments when you very when you hear your record for the first time ever on a radio, and that for me happened with that track. I I had um, got to the recording studio to re to record that day the rest of the album, and it was playing on a, on WKTU, very big station in New York, and uh, yeah, that was that was thrilling. So so that was a you know, that was the start really of what was to come un unknown to me because I was making electronic music then. Uh -huh. I was I was keen on, you know, I'd started this little um, demo with this, this other guy uh, of a band which I didn't want anything to do with guitar, so I called it No Strings Attached. Uh -huh. And uh, it was purely electronic, and that and that 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 served a purpose for a few months, and then I went my went my own way. And um, as Fleetwood Matt would say, and um, <laughs> and uh, and just you know got this record deal, and and then, then I was up and away really. And the album actually had a lot of pub publicity. Um, I was on the front page of Billboard and Cashbox magazine, whatever it was in those days. And um, it was it was a great learning curve for me. But the album was very electronic. It was early. Uh, I guess you would you would call it. Um, I mean, there's a link. I think if you listen to that album, probably. To what I do today, mm. um, it has its roots. It has it has melody. It's song based. It's electronic. 
um, which was pretty groundbreaking at the time because we, we were using things like drum machines. Uh, there are some live musicians on there, some brass players and things like that. Um, but essentially, yeah, it was it was um, mostly made on a on a Korg Poly Six synthesizer, which was quite uh, a revolutionary instrument, which came out at the time uh, as far as keyboards went. And and so, um, as I said, I had a, I think I had two or three singles off the album, and then following a couple of years later i think the album the 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 um record company i was signed to millennium didn't get distributed it separated from rca mm. and and he said to me jimmy Iner, the owner said well what do you want to do because i'm gonna you know i've got this is a sort of crossroads for us now we're either going to get a new distribution a new distributor or we're gonna I don't know. I think ultimately the label folded, but I said, well, I just want to carry on making, making music. Mm. And so to that end, um, I came back to the UK and basically started again. I went to work for, a, went to work in a keyboard shop in London, Rod Argent's keyboards. Right. Uh, and then, um, I, I then from there, I got, somebody found out that I'd made that album that you talked about, Horizontal Hold, uh-huh. came into the shop and said, I, I want you to come and produce some records with me. Anyway, it was I was in the mix in the middle of London in that shop and all sorts of interesting people would come in and out of the shop. And, and I wasn't there. I was barely there a couple of weeks, I should imagine, um, from memory. And the next thing I was doing, I was playing keyboards for Billy Ocean. Wow. Is that, is that kind of how these things happened in the sort of late 80s, early 90s? You had to be kind of in the place where the musicians were going in order to get your big I break, so. if you like, or your opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that's right, because we didn't have social media. We didn't have things that you could, uh, you know, click on the keyboard and, and send your track somewhere. It was very much more physical presence. Mm. Uh, I, there was a feeling that you needed to be in these big cities. For me, it was New York City. It was London. Yeah. It was where these were hubs where things happened. You used to also um, have, in music shops, as I remember, you used to have little kind of adverts as well that people would put on the notice board to try and get a guitarist yeah. or a vocalist, you know. Yeah, exactly. There was, there was none yeah, of this uh, kind of gum tree generation. It was, if it wasn't up in, yeah, the, exactly. in the shop, you didn't see it. You missed your op. No, you missed your op, exactly. <laughs> and that, exactly, and you never, you never know what that might have led to. So there was a sense of, you know, trying everything and what's not leaving a stone unturned. And there was a keen sort of sense of being in, in, in a music environment. I mean, for example, that music shop, Rod Argent's Keyboards, is in a place called Tin Pan Alley, mm. in, um, Denmark Street in London. Yes, and that's where well, we were yeah. this music. Yeah, so you know the history of the music publishing. Mm. It was very much a nerve centre of... Um, of music um and and you really felt it and 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 i think to be in there and uh as you said as opportunities were there you it's up to you to kind of filter them and work out if that was going to be a good move or not such a good move um but for me it as i said it led to me um it was it, it was it, it was because i because nobody knew who i was here i'd had some success in america but that was it it was very much stateside mm. so it was it was very much starting again for me and and i um as i said i went to play keyboards for billy ocean for obviously huge record when the going gets tough uh-huh. um and I was also signed at that time as an artist. I did get a deal with RCA, funnily enough, here as well. But I went out under the name of Steve Carlton. 
I can't remember why I didn't use my own name. Maybe it was something to do with the Billy Ocean thing. I don't know. But anyway, we just picked another name to keep things separate. And um, and, and so I made a couple of singles for RCA uh, under the name of Steve Carlton. And then, um, and then that took us kind of to the early 90s and the rave scene. And people were starting to make their own records when they couldn't get on Radio 1. Mm. There was this culture of well okay um can't get airplay so i'm gonna do it myself and i by this time i had um assembled quite a nice studio every time i got some money or some royalties or whatever i'd buy another piece of equipment so so i wanted to make my own records it was very you know it was always the dream to have your own studio mm-hmm. it, it, was, it, it was expensive going into recording studios and you only really got in recording studios if a label were interested enough in uh, would put you in that studio or a publisher. Mm. So, um, but I was lucky because I, I I built up quite a nice little setup. I could at least make some um, more than just basic recordings, but some some a way for me to get my music down at least. And um, and I remember uh, one guy came to use my studio because I used to rent it out to, to make some money. I used to rent it out when I wasn't doing my own thing in it, but I would, I would be the engineer in my own studio. And this one guy came along and he said, uh, he wanted to, he wanted me to mix um, one of his pieces of music that he'd made. And I said, well, what do you do with this music? And he said, well, I sell it uh, on, I print, I pre- press the vinyl up and I sell it. And I said, well, that's that, that sounds good what's 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 the problem mm. why don't you just keep doing that he said well the problem is i don't get paid for maybe two or three months mm. and i and i need the money for being paid before i can move on to the next one so anyway long story short i ended up um getting a, 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 a pressing um deal with a with a record pressing plan in order that we could make these records and and have a credit line so that we could press one up and still press another one up if we needed to without having to wait three months. Mm. And it worked really well. I sort of partnered up with this guy and we started putting vinyl out at a time when it, it was his own, it was this, this separate scene, if you like. Um, if you weren't going to be signed to a major label, which let's be honest, wasn't the reality for most people. The next thing was that you did it yourself. Mm. And well, that's kind of how house, that's kind of how house music was born, really. In Chicago, they used to kind exactly. of press vinyl out of old vinyl and make these hideous yeah. recordings, which they'd sell at the back out the back of cars, wouldn't they? So it was kind of well. I was just going, I was about to say, scene. I had a Golf GTI, and, and I it was I, one of my biggest thrills was going up to the pressing plant in London and loading these boxes. Um, well, loading them into the car and then dumping them off at these different distributors uh-huh. in London out the back of my golf and it was hilarious it was like this is the way this it felt so radically different and cutting edge and and it was different to anything i'd ever been used to with rca in yeah. new york and real ownership of your of your product yeah it was great i loved it and it taught you know i think it taught all us as label owners as as we were technically um you know just just the basics of of running running a, a, a label and how things worked. I mean, you know, you had to get your artwork sorted out. Mm. You had to um, do it all yourself. And the music that I was putting out uh, with this other guy was quite techno-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but every now and again, there would be one which we'd throw in a bit more disco or a bit more melody. And I noticed that the sales of those records were, went up at the time when 
techno was dying off. Mm. And and so that was a nice transition for me to go smoothly into a more commercial direction. And in fact, it was one of those records rocking for myself, which originally was a sort of techno version on, on my own label, uh, which I then redid into um, the, the first version, if you like, because there ended up being quite a few of them of rocking for myself, which I then put out again on my own little label called Nuff Respect. And I had to it's so cool. work out how to do it. So cool, Steve. So cool. <laughs> I was down with the kids. <laughs> I don't even know where that... But anyway, it, 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 was, it had a little logo with the guy with the hat on it. It was really good. I, I, you know, I, you were so into your whole craft and, and the artwork was as much almost yeah, spent more time on absolutely. the recording. But, but the, the long and the short of it is that I, I, and I got a distribution deal with, um, with Pinnacle, which was, you know, they were, they were a pretty major player and they were local to me in Kent. And, uh, and I got that record got in the top 75. I couldn't believe it. It was a real big move up for me from selling records out the back of a golf mm. to now getting into the lower reaches of the national chart on my own little label. It's like, okay, well, this is going in the right direction. And then pretty soon after that, I got a call from Warners saying, uh, okay, um, can you come in and, and talk to us? You seem to know what you're doing. Because I was obviously making finished product. Um, and they said, you know, here's a contract for six six singles. Wow. Uh, you know what you're doing? There you go. We'll put them out. So it wasn't a and in the strict sense of, you know, nurturing a talent, putting them in the studio with a producer. I did all that. I, yeah. I made the finished records. And... And that particular track, Rocking For Myself, was now well over a year old. Um, I remember, you know, DJs saying to me, I don't really like your record, but I can't take it out of my box. <laughs> and I kind of didn't know what they meant by that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, not being a DJ at that point, I said, well, what's a box? You mean a cardboard box? No, my record box. <laughs> right? So he, 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 he was hanging on about how you know, the demand was there for this record. And that, that, that's how it filtered through. It was just, it wouldn't go away on the underground. It was an underground record, which wouldn't go away. And that led to, that led to Warner's contacting me and giving me that contract. And that mean, meant that I then remixed my own record, if you like, because I felt, well, obviously it's coming out on Warner's. It needs to have a, a fresh, a, a fresh approach again. So that's how I, I, I redid it. And it, it and features the, the, the iconic vocals of one of our best UK divas, the, the inimitable Angie Brown. And I remember Absolutely. hearing it for the first yeah. time. It was on, a, I was on holiday. Well, I say holiday. We got on this trip to Donington Race Park, which is not my bag at all, but we dragged there by my dad. And I'd taken along a dance zone, two tape, two cassette bundle nice. and just wore it out in my Walkman and rocking for myself was like track eight on side one or something and I just remember thinking this is incredible what an incredible tune and then me and my sister just just didn't stop playing it it is a fantastic really? tune I, it's on heavy rotation in this house yeah
great. That's great. I love hearing stories like that because, you know, it just is the icing on the cherry. When you're in an environment like this, you're making music, it can be quite isolating. And, mm. uh, you know, you feel in some ways you're just focused on that task in front of you. Um, and then, you know, so to hear that years later when you when you hear about, oh, gosh, you know, stories like that, it's it, it just means it sort of um, justifies the doing the, the toil that you went through to, to make it all. Oh, well, tiny time. Um, Honoured to share it with you. It. Um, it very much set the blueprint for the kind of motivate formula. So, rocking for myself, that kind of now, I'm I'm not a remixer. I'm not. I wouldn't. I'm a songwriter, but I'm not a musician. So I couldn't tell you what those that what it was called, the timing or anything like that. But it sounds very similar in terms of the synth, synths you used or um, what, whatever that kind of electronic music is that then became a pattern throughout all of your remixes. So what like, what was your influence? Because it, it sounds like a very kind of piano-led, um, almost Frankie Knuckles style, uh, but sped up, almost like Frank, Frankie Knuckles on acid. Um, very kind of of the time, thumping, uplifting, anthemic. What influenced you to kind of produce that sound? Because it was absolutely the hallmark of a motivate song. There was no, yeah. there was no kind of illusions there. It was it it was a little bit of all of these ingredients, which was basically what I loved about music when I grew up. So we have to have melody. We have to have drums because i was obsessed with drums and that was my first instrument so that's a pretty good start for a dance record mm -hmm. because you've got your drums to underpin everything you've got your, your dance floor taken care of with 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 the rhythm um and obviously bass part of that um but but the melody i think was that was the that was the factor which really it had to be a song and a song that worked on the dance floor. So, you know, I was influenced by anything that had melody when I was growing up. I mean, I think one example probably as a direct sort of close comparison would be something like Donna Summer, I Feel Love, yeah. something like that. John, mm. George M. Roda's influence had the electronic mm. side of things. So I kind of loved that record because it had everything for me that a dance record should have. In fact, you know, the old story of if you drop that, in a club, not that there are clubs at the moment, but you know, today it would still work yeah. and still probably don't work. So, so certain things don't, don't go out of time and, and, and don't go out of fashion rather. And, um, and I think that that's my mate, my DNA was very much in melody and rhythm and dance and making um, good pop records really, but, but not just sugary pop records records that had a little bit of a bite in. I did mm. like my rock when I grew up. I did like some guitars. I did like, even though I said earlier, I started, you know, you do change. I think musically you do go through different phases. And for me, it was like, you might, I, I just retained some of the elements of a particular genre of music that I liked. So I mm. did like kind of edgy sounds and I found it worked really well for me in that Motivate style. It maybe wouldn't be a guitar, but it might be a keyboard with a quite an aggressive sound providing mm. a mid-range drive to mm. the track and when i sat that over a bass which was perhaps quite driving as well i had a really good 
formula, if you like, for, for the dance floor. And then the song part of it would take care of itself. It was either a good song, it wasn't a good song. It either had a good melody or it didn't have a good melody. So mm. there was no middle ground with that. And I think I just liked songs and melodies. So my music tended to be quite aggressive on the bottom end, but with this sort of ethereal kind of almost choral qualities yeah. sometimes in, in, in the top and middle half. It's and almost I like don't the, really know the what, rhythm, I don't think I, rhythm underneath and the rhythm on the top were both quite complex, both quite, yeah. you know, like you said, aggressive, um, but yeah. they worked in perfect synchronicity, whereby they were like chants, like baby, 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 it's like a chart, chant, it just yeah. gets into yeah. you and you can't help but sh- shout it and sing it back. It's no, a great yeah, that's track. That's the pop side of me. I mean, I think when I was growing up, I, when I was, you know, even before I went to America, when you're in your local band in your in your in your town, as it were, I, and again, I was the drummer and a, and a singer in that band. But the but but the whenever we played the music to a record company or people, the, the same message came back because this was like they would be like seven or eight minute episodic kind of long pieces, Genesis like. And they come back and go, well, it's all good, but we need a th- we, we, we need a hit. We need a three-minute hit single with a chorus. And that was it. Once I heard that, I never looked back. I never went back to any long pieces of music. It was all about the hit for me. It was all about, right, where's the chorus? What's going to be the bit that, that attracts? I'm, I'm going into a different type of music. It's no wonder um, you're so heavily that... involved in Eurovision, really, is it? <laughs> that is the perfect well, blueprint I mean, for a Eurovision it's... smash. You say that, but I'm, I mean, I was obviously heavily involved because of because of Uwa just a little bit, and then and then basically nothing until yesterday. Until yes, I, we, I, I haven't. Yeah, we were going to we were gonna mean, talk about that. In I haven't minute, been yeah. involved in Eurovision. I haven't been involved in Eurovision since then. A lot of people said to get involved, but I, I just didn't really. I didn't understand much about Eurovision, to be absolutely honest. When 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 I made Uwa just a little bit, of course, that was not originally intended to be. On Eurovision, it wasn't going to be a Eurovision record. Um, it, it turned out that you know it was entered into the competition, but um, as I said, and that's probably why a lot of people said, "Oh, it sounds very different." Well, it it it, it, prob- it was probably it, it was probably one of the records that probably turned, I think, the style of Eurovision entries. I think that's what I think. I think that a lot of people don't actually realise that it was from Eurovision because it's synonymous no. with the 90s now. Whenever you yeah. listen to a 90s radio show or a 90s compilation album, you are just a little bit is at the top of that list. Um, yes, I know. You know so it's people, funny, people growing up now will probably think, God, that was in Eurovision? That, I, that just, yeah, well, that's they're, just they're what they're my right parents because they're right because Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. So it, it did come about it from that direction as opposed to someone sitting down writing a track for Eurovision. You Clearly, you could you could probably hear that it wasn't um and, and maybe that's maybe that's maybe that was a good thing for it really as i said it was the eurovision really just helped the record i think um become more successful it was already quite successful before we went to oslo in 96 um but the eurovision that all the promotion and everything that that it had um really 
I think just tipped it over and pushed it to number one the following day after after Eurovision. You were up against quite a few hard heavy hitters that year representing the UK. I remember I got a little CD from our price with all the first 30 seconds of all the tracks on them and you were up against Layla's Find Love which I absolutely adore. Um, right. You know I, I, I there were loads of great tracks that year but not only did Eurovision win, did, did, we, did you go through to Eurovision but actually which is unheard of, it was a number one in this country. Yes. Which is unheard I of. I know and I it is unheard of. I, I'm, someone told me, I'm not very good on these stats, but someone told me, and I don't know if it's true, I think it's it's the most successful song out of Eurovision. And I said, don't be ridiculous, it can't be more successful than ABBA's Waterloo. And he said, yeah, it sold more than that. Right. So, And it's sort of some weird records like that. But yeah, I mean, that it, it's funny, because obviously it didn't win Eurovision, and I, I remember um, Gina was quite disappointed about that. Um, but... By modern standards, someone would probably say it did quite well coming eighth. You know, it's just, it, it isn't a competition which uh, I don't think, it, you know, it's, it's, they used to say, well, we're not very liked on in Europe, you know, hello Brexit and all the rest of it. <laughs> it, it, it you know, and that's, you can see why no one likes the UK, it doesn't matter what you put out, you're never going to do well at Eurovision now. So it's, but it's a, it's a good bit of fun. I mean, this, this, yesterday I was judging on the Euro, the Estonian I was one of the, I think the UK got, uh, was drawn as one of the countries or selected as one of the countries amongst others to judge uh, the Estonian national final mm. to help them pick their, their, um, their song that will represent their country. And um, it was amazing. It's like another world, really. There was such high quality. The level of songwriting has really gone up and, mm. um, it's certainly changed. I shouldn't say gone up because it's all subjective. Experimental, but, but it's different, though, isn't it? and it felt very. Yeah, absolutely. And it, there were some great, you know, entries that um, very well produced as well. And and things have changed. And and there's also another world. I say another world because there's life beyond the usual markets of the UK um, and the US. Because there are these uh, there are these artists over there, and they've got several hundred thousand views already of their track on YouTube, mm. and they've got a following of people that are very loyal in those smaller countries. Mm. And um, it's interesting; it's a learning curve for me because actually I don't know much about Eurovision, and and I you know obviously Estonia is a small country, um, and I don't know whether, for example, Estonia. Someone said to me, "Oh yeah, they've always been good at not pandering to Eurovision and just doing their own thing. They don't, you know, they don't." I don't know if they've got a history of doing particularly well at Eurovision, but it wouldn't surprise me. It, it, they could easily because the quality of the songwriting on offer and also w- was very high. And also a lot of the songwriters are, are obviously now from different countries. Yeah. So it's been thrown open to, it, it doesn't matter anymore. You've got America. I think they might have to write with somebody or mm. at least one of the writers might be from that country. But it means that there's a lot of cross-pollinization, and which is interesting. It's great for music generally. So I think that's a, a healthy thing. So I put forward a song for to represent the UK in 2013. I'll have to send it you and see what you think. Um, okay. 
And yes, there is a lot of red tape around it. So you have to be a native of that country or you have to have lived there for a certain... Because we thought, oh, we'll write this song, we'll send it off to the UK, but we'll hedge our bets. And we'll send it off to um, a fair few European countries as well. But it turned out that once we kind of sorted all through the bureaucracy of it, that Norway, I think, was the only place that wasn't accepting songs that were necessarily from native Norwegian people. So we sent it to them as well. We didn't get in, yeah. needless to say, Bonnie did Lang. Did you get a reply? Lang. Yes, we did from Norway, but not from the BBC. But Norway did send us a letter, I've still got it somewhere. But the BBC, we know that it landed on their desk because I knew the person who was on the panel. But I think they'd already yeah. booked Bonnie Tyler. So we right. just kind of, they, they must, I think they listened to it, but they didn't cons- They didn't even consider it. Um, so Eurovision aside then, as a remixer, we've, we've heard about your, your, your time as a songwriter and a pop star, but as a remixer, you have literally mixed with the biggest and the best of the industry. Kylie, Pet Shop Boys, Pulp, Dubstar, Diana Ross, Erasure, Spice Girls. How does that happen? How did it happen? I'll tell you how it happened. When I first signed to Warner's to put uh, Rocking For Myself out again, um, as soon as I was signed to them, I was like a kid in a sweet shop because the, can you imagine? Me, there was all these great artists that I'd grown up with some of the music I'd in the set, you know, you, these, this American rec- legendary art, Warner's is such a huge label. The, the first thing that, I saw was the Doobie Brothers. Mm. Um, not that I knew much about the Doobie Brothers, but I remember when I was at school, you know, the great American acts, and these were legends. And suddenly, you know, they were within my grasp. And I said to the to, to the label, I said, "Do you mind if I um, have a go at remixing the Doobie Brothers track? Uh, listen to the music because they'd already got a remix done of the first single." Long train running, yeah, I've got it. Running. <laughs> So I said, well, I'll, I'll, let me do the let me do this track, and if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. Um, and they said, sure. So the next thing I've got these tapes from, and I'm listening to them in my studio. I just think my jaws just dropping, thinking, ah, oh, so that's how American engineers, because there was always this thing about British engineers and American sound engineers, mm. not not a rivalry, but both were excellent for different reasons. And, and I said, oh, that's interesting. This is the way they've recorded those guitars, you know. So anyway, I've got, a, I've got the tracks here in my studio. And um, when I kind of got over that, I was able to then think, okay, well, let me, let me see what I'm going to do with this track. It, was, it wasn't an easy track actually to do because obviously I wanted to keep those guitars. It's a feature, it's a feature of the original mm. song, which was slightly unusual for me because most of my remixes, I will just use literally the vocals and build everything up new yeah and that's in the case of the doobies that's probably i think probably the only exception i i can think of to that which was because it had if it's got something really significant about the track that that you want to keep then that that's that's what i did um i.e the guitars um but once i'd done that record uh which did pretty well actually that as a remix it did well it went on the radio i was hearing on capital it went into the charts um and that then led to me meeting the same label. Warner said, there's a guy called Jarvis Cocker wants to meet you. Um, and I didn't really know too much about who Jarvis Cocker was, but I kind of then realised, yeah, he's in a, in a band that have guitars in. And why does he want to meet me? I'm doing kind of Euro dance, you know, mm. Italian dance. And he said, no, no, he really likes your record, Rocking for Myself. 
he really, really likes it and wants you to meet him. So I thought, okay, cool. So I met with him and his bass player, Steve. And, uh, and they said, look, yeah, we really love rocking for myself. Can you remix our track, Common People? Mm. Um, and, it, uh, you know, which was very fast. It was like 170 BPM or something. It was like not something that was e immediately led itself to thinking um, that's obviously <laughs> easy to remix. But then having just done the doobies, which was tricky, I thought, yeah, fine, I'll have a go at that. She came from Greece, she had the thirst for knowledge. She stood the sculpture at St. Martin's College. That's where I got her eye. She told me that her dad was loaded. And I did it, and I did the remix, and the next thing, uh, Radio One heard um, it was Mark Goody, I think, on, on, on Radio One. They, they, he said, "We've heard there's a remix of um, Common People." They must have played the original, and then they said at the end, he said at the end that we've heard there's a remix. We haven't got that remix, but we're going to send a bike round to the record company, <laughs> Island Records, and we want you. And when we've got that remix, we're going to play it, and we want everybody to phone in and tell us what you think of it. And I literally remember thinking, that's that's my career down the drain then, because they're basically going to say, this is awful and we don't want anything to do with it. And it, it was kind of a make or break moment because, of course, he played it and everybody loved it and rang in and said, what is this mix? Mm. And, mm. and it could have gone either way as far I think that was a seminal moment. It really defined almost my Motivate remixing career right there that afternoon because the demand was then so high. Radio One saying, well, that's the Motivate remix. And literally almost that evening, the phone started ringing. Can you remix Diana Ross? Can you remix, you know, Robert Palmer, Pet mm. Shop Boys? It just was crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was inundated with these remix offers. And, and that's, to answer your question in a bit of a long-winded way, but that's how it came about. That's how I was able to um, work with those big-name artists. It's because I had to sort of select which one I was going to do. And, and, and um, oh, it, it was pretty well self-selecting because obviously when you have those big names coming at you to, to say, can you, can you remix our record? Um, uh, then I, it was a no-brainer for me. And I, I just love making music. And for me, it was a way of continuing to make music. I was meant to be in the middle of a contract for Warners for six singles, and I'd only released one of them. Mm. And here I was getting, deviating to remixing other artists in the middle of my supposed artist career with Warners. Maybe you should have called, yourself, you should have called yourself Deviate instead of Motivate. Yeah. <laughs> But a bunch. That's a good one. <laughs> with, 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 yeah, bitch. With the little, with the little eight at the end as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or kept that for the remixing and kept motivate for sort of motivate artists. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. Um, particularly yeah. with the dub star and with the pulp. I mean, your your remix of Disco Two Thousand was probably as popular as the original because you were kind of taking. You were taking songs that were really popular within with certain music fans and crossing them over to a whole new audience. You must have had because you know whereas something would have been you know released as a single and probably on an indie compilation, it was then because of Motivate appearing on a dance compilation as well. So it was like it was like collecting yeah. new audiences 
and kind of crossing crossing over genres. Do you did you find that you had a really kind of big gay following because you're I mean I'm a, I'm an LGBT plus person and and I could have imagined your songs being on a heavy heavy rotation in the gay clubs because they were just so uplifting anthemic you know all the things that you would expect they they were usually fronted by a big diva so you kind of had all of yeah. the ingredients i i had all the ingredients but i sort of stumbled on them without really trying to make them that way i just loved female vocals and i particularly loved those big diva gospel type singer voices and mm. i therefore i tended to obviously with angie singing rocking for myself you know i just loved that that type of vocal um, it wasn't deliberately trying to set out to make a big diva record for for a gay club or, or gay audience per se, but I I was aware that that amongst the broad spectrum of of my followers, it included that the gay market, which was great because I you know that's that. So I just went along. I wasn't specifically making records for that market, but um, I, I just think it was a great market and it really helped. It helped such a loyal um, following and such a loyal market that that um, I was lucky to have that really because I'm sure it played a huge part in supporting the the success early on. Um, but yeah, so I was aware of it because obviously more and more people would feed back to me and say, "Oh, this is you know." I mean, I remember when I was invited up to the fridge in Brixton. Mm specifically just to see uh, my the reaction to my music. They would have a sort of, I don't know if it was a, wasn't a motivated night, but it was playing a lot of my music by the DJ, Mark Andrews at the time. Um, and uh, it was it was, it was was mind-blowing because it, it was back to that story of getting you out of the studio and actually seeing the end product like you described going on holiday and uh, playing the rocket for myself. It, to see those tracks, um, you know, he's on the phone and clubs taking off to it uh was quite special for me yeah oh my gosh i almost forgot he's on the phone what a smash what an absolute smash again that track is so synonymous with the 90s it's always on the top of a 90s playlist it's absolutely fantastic like in the 90s then did you have like did you meet a lot of the artists did you have mates who were also on the remixing scene did you go out and dj what what was your kind of what what was your part as opposed to producing the music what did you play play any other parts in that kind of scene in the scene um i did i i did i did play a real i'd say a sort of middle line because i didn't um I went out to clubs quite a bit. I was living in London at the time, and I, I, I did quite enjoy going to the to the club scene and and just listening to music. And so I was I went. I probably that's when I did my my most amount of clubbing was around that time. But I but I wouldn't be at the extreme of you know going till six o'clock in the morning uh, and then moving along to several other clubs and all the rest. Of it. I, I I was still quite. Sort of sensible in my ways and I would just love the music and um so I would go I, perhaps I would go to a couple of different clubs um 
in a, in a night, but uh, I'd still be sort of safely tucked up in bed by sort of three o'clock or something like that. So I, I was sort of straddling a middle line between um, being involved in the scene, but 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 not at an extreme uh, level. And as far as having um, friends who were also remixes, no, I didn't actually. I remember, um, I think, I think uh, a lot of people, I didn't meet a lot of other remixes or producers because I wasn't really a re I became a remixer, but I was first and foremost a songwriter and a producer. Mm. And I was really just sort of fixing up other people's records on the side. That's how I saw it. Um, it wasn't my main thing in life, if you like, whereas I could understand for some of these guys, it was, it was literally their job was as a remixer. For me, it was a sort of side hustle. Mm. And, um, and, and 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 within those records there were quite some nice productions as well um the pet shop boys and things like that and even even he's on the phone that i produced and and uh doing the vocals again with sarah from dubstar because the original tempo was so slow we couldn't really time stretch that so mm. it required revocaling and um same with the spice girls of course because again that was a very slow original uh, version and so we went back in the studio and just re-recorded re uh, the vocals with the girls which is another story um, <laughs> but because they hadn't actually happened at that point yeah. so it was kind of sweet the way they were all so innocent and kind of waiting for the when you know the, 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 can you imagine working with them for all the success mentioned Eurodance as well early, earlier which is obviously what the podcast is about um, yeah and what how did you were you kind of influenced by that Eurodance movement because there was a lot of yeah I did I did, I did like Italian those records coming and, out mm. yeah the Italian records particularly which is probably where the piano came from um, or at least I just loved piano anyway and it was a good excuse once I heard somebody else doing it on the continent I thought well look because it wasn't a lot of British piano records, as far as I remember. No. I was always in two lines. And people liked to uh, liked a piano, didn't they? Yeah, they did like a piano. But in terms of, I got the, I, I almost had to check myself when I used a piano in those early days, which is crazy looking back on it, thinking, now, is this a classic instrument that needs to be in this record? Or is it something that's dated and shouldn't be on there? And I'd always wrestle slightly with that feeling and said, no. No, we're going to go with it because it's it sounds great, and 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 you just did. And I I don't know if you noticed, but with a lot of my piano records, there, there's a little bit of mixture of a synth in with it. Mm. They kind of have it. Does, it isn't necessarily a pure piano sound mm. uh, in the true sense. It almost has a ripple it, behind it, doesn't it? It does. It has a slight chorusing and a slight fattening. So there is that. It has the what I call the teeth of the piano. It has the front end of the edge of it, but it's the actual sonic qualities are quite different and actually a lot of people um email me and say what is that piano sound you used uh, and the honest to god answer is that i don't know it's a sample which i used in my sampler and i mixed with my keyboard and i just ended up always using the same piano sound. i don't know where it came from it was on a disc that someone must have given me in the early 90s and i said oh that's quite nice i'll use that one 
and um, tweaked it a bit and just carried on using it. And I, I found it, it just it just worked. And again, it helped, I think, define part of my sound. Absolutely. You know, I just 100%. locked into a way of making, yeah. I locked into a way of, of making these sounds and um, that, that worked for me in the type of music I was making. slightly i mean you mentioned about dubstar that's a good example of a record which which is a little bit different if you like to the to the mass of the remixes i was making at one point um softer tones to it mm. uh, slower tempo if i remember rightly slightly um but then but, like the, you know, the actual it, song itself as you said before was really slow i mean I, it was really you, if you listen to the motivate remix and then you listen to the original you're like Oof, you get halfway through the original and i'm going back to motivate thanks <laughs> well it, it, it it's a it was amazing because it it replaced it was on the radio one playlist and it replaced the main version mm. on on radio one and of course that all fed into why i was getting so much more work than my fellow remixes and they i think there was a sense i sensed once that, that there was almost a feeling of jealousy amongst well why am i getting all this work as a remix or why are my records appearing everywhere i didn't i didn't wasn't asking for it. i was just doing what i do best i think i was just enjoying myself and it because i had that commercial edge if you like i wasn't an underground dj i was making records that that would work on the radio. And that's exactly what the labels were coming to me for, because I, as you touched on earlier, I was able to interface, or my mixes were able to interface two different markets. So for example, Pulp, through my mixes, you could take a rock band and, and it would work to a different audience. Mm. Uh, and that became the name of the game for these record companies. And also my mixes, they always asked me to do a radio version. It became part of the deal. You know, you do the club mercy, but we want a radio because they knew that my cuts were likely to to get on radio or at least offer the radio an alternative short version. Uh, and as you say, a couple of those um, did actually go on to become the main, if you like, the main version. Main event. But then you said that yeah. you built, you you get the vocals and then you build up the almost like an, a new version of the song rather than a remix. Yeah. And very intricate. I mean, how you did it was very intricately layered. Um, as opposed to someone like Todd Terry, another amazing remixer, who for the most part would just speed yeah. up and put a drum beat on the on the you know house beat, but it worked. Um, yeah. Did you get to the point where you did have to say, right, good is good enough? I, you know, this this remix was was it about a deadline? Because obviously the way in which they were all layered up would have taken time. You must have been listening to things over and over, going, oh, I'll just move that piano bit there, or I'll just cut this little bit up and replace it. Did you ever get to a point where you'd listen to it through and just go, no, 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 I'm not happy, I'm not happy? Did you have to get to a point where you were like, as a remix there, as a as a producer, okay, I have to stop here because I'm going to drive myself balmy. Only to the point of the, perhaps the actual mix itself, only sonically, you know, was that vocal loud enough? Was it quiet enough? Is the, is the drums right? But never in terms of what am I doing in this direction of it? Because I, why that never happened was because I used building blocks. I always started with my foundation and I didn't move on to the next building block until the first one was was 
solid and I was happy with it. So, for example, I would start uh, and still do, you know, kick drum. It's good if it's making a dance record. It's all about the kick drum for me. You've got to start with a foundation that's going to keep the dance floor going. You mm. could just play a kick drum. It would sound okay. So that pins it, underpins everything. So you're moving up. For me, it was moving up through the spectrum. So yeah. the kick drum, the bass, add the drums, the hi-hats. And I've already, before I've even, remember, before I've even laid down these instruments, I have had a play around. I know where I'm going with this song. Am I using the same chords as the original song? which sometimes I did because they were the right ones, or sometimes I'd think, hmm, let's try this. Well, this works in that key with the same vocal. That works, um, and I prefer it, so I would go with that. So once I've done that pre-production of, of deciding the general direction, the rest of it was fairly easy for me to actually uh, interlace all the parts that were building from the bottom upwards. What's your favourite Motivate song? I mean, gosh, that's a difficult question. Is that there are different reasons for liking different versions? I do like the Doobie Brothers one because it's 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 retains those Amer- that American element, and it's it's just funny every time I see that video on YouTube with the with the band playing it from a concert to my mix. <laughs> it, it, it's hilarious. <laughs> obviously dubbed it over but it 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 works or was it the official video i can't remember but anyway it's on there and it's that 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 i i do like that mix dub star we've talked about that one synthetian he's on the phone yeah um was was another uplifting moment and and very difficult to to go back and redo those mixes as well i mean i someone said oh redo he's on the phone it's very difficult when you kind of maxed out the first time round. you'd just be doing things changing for the sake of change so you can't redo it it's I perfect as it is it's perfect as it yeah is. exactly and actually i think that's kind of works now because there's a demand for the 90s yeah. such a strong demand for the 90s again there's no need to actually really go back and and change things if you if you've done a 90s remix so i've kind of lucked out in that regard so if so, there might be people out there who who have listened to you but not realised they've listened to you. Some people are a bit more tuned in to looking for the remix there. Some people just accept tunes for as they are when they come on the radio. If you are out there thinking, oh, I want to, I, I want to get more involved in in Steve's creations or motivate remixes, I would recommend as a fan, Dana Dawson yeah. show me. Oh yeah. Uh, Break the chain is your yeah. actual tune. Spice Girls yeah. dub slam. Yeah. It's one of those tracks. It's about six or seven minutes long and never outstays its welcome. Ooh, ah, just a little bit. The Vintage Honey Mix and the Pet Shop Boys Red Letter Day are just prime cuts of amazing dance steak, if you like. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, um, I go, you know, I, I don't know. Sounds egotistical. I don't mean I'd go along with that. I mean, I, I agree. Uh, those are, those are, those have got special places for me. Every one of those records you just mentioned has a special place, whether it's a memory of how it was made, the end result. But um, there's another record I'd add in, mm-hmm. which not a lot of people, it's a kind of Marmite record. I think you either like it, you don't. But 
for me, it, it, it does capture an energy, and it was called Jellyhead by Crush. Yes, I listened to it the other day, yeah. Yeah. I don't and, know it um, enough, actually, because it was two girls from Biker Grove, wasn't it, who decided yeah. they wanted to be singers in the same way that BJ yeah. Dunker did. But yes, you're and absolutely I, I, right. That's quite a good song that is... It's p- a good song, but it, it, yeah, and I just I threw this energy at the track. I threw this energy at the track, and I didn't know if it... Talk about aggressive synths. It's got all of that in it. And a really driving bass line. And I guess I listen to the track now in a different way to when I was making it in the studio because I've been influenced. I heard it in Barbados when I went on holiday in a bar. And then I went to LA and the guy at the lights next to me in the car was playing it and it was on the radio. It was massive in America. Really? And wow. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, in fact, it was really more successful there than it was here. But um, it was, it, uh, you know, I put a lot of piano in it again, and um, the the vocal performances are different on it because, as you say, it's more of a sort of it's more of a pop pop kind of vocal mm. on there. It's a great tracks. I mean, I I've enjoyed every single one of those. Break the chain. I mean, that has got. Um, oh gosh, I drove myself crazy with how many mixes I did of that. I ended up doing I so many mixes. Quite, there's I, quite a few on the CD single. I've got it here. Yeah, and I remember thinking, gosh, this could be another record. You know. Um, here it is. <sighs> yeah. You wrote "Break the Chain" with um, Brian Higgins. I did. Yeah. Xenomania fame. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Brian and I, well, Brian, that's a funny story. I mean, he uh, got in touch with me after having heard the first version of Rocking for Myself, which he'd heard on holiday. When you said you were on holiday, he was, I think he was in Greece. And he said it was yeah, in Greece. He, he I... was probably somewhere a bit more glamorous than I was at the age of <laughs> 12. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and he said, I, you know, like the record, can I come and um, just watch you work? So, So he used to come over and hang out with me in the studio and I liked it because it was another set of ears that I could say right Brian do you prefer this version version A or version B and I played him a, you know, one with the keyboard in one with the keyboard out or whatever second riff third riff and um, so it was good sounding board and that was that was kind of how um, we ended up doing quite a bit of I can't remember which records I actually did with him in the end but because he went off to do his own thing mm. um and um, obviously massively successful as well. But yeah, and oh, I, that's right, because I remember doing the demo of Believe. Sure. Uh, recording, recording, yeah, mm. which obviously was his big record. And um, when he was, obviously years before that, when he was um, making his way um, with, a, with, a, with a friend of his as a sort of duo, they came to record this track at my studio and wanted me to sort of pull it into shape. And that was the very early version of, of Believe. So basically what you're telling me, Steve, is really you've been at the forefront of most of the 90s gay anthems. Really? I mean, come on. Basically, Gina G, yes. who are just a little yeah. bit, might as well be yeah. our anthem. 
We can can officially crown it as the anthem now. Absolutely. I've taken so much time off you on this this Sunday where where it's actually quite nice weather outside. So one last question, if you wouldn't mind. What's next for you? You've been responsible for driving this movement. You've been responsible for bringing so much joy to so many people's radios and earphones and and iPods, etc. What's next for you? What's next for me is 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 actually now going back into doing some new recordings. I took a hiatus. Obviously, we've had COVID. Mm. Just before COVID, I was just starting to tour again. Actually, I just we'd just done um, a, con- a festival in Glasgow in August nineteen, and there were some dates lined up. We're going to go to Australia, and it was going to be the start of the of the motivate kind of comeback. Um, then we've had COVID, and so it is still the motivate comeback but from a studio perspective first of all so i've got all these projects i've still got tracks that i i need to finish the productions i found uh, i did some recordings with robert palmer Mm. um you know obviously there's addicted to love but i've got another track with him which uh, which i've done so i'm really looking forward to now using this time to to just uh, get this all these projects up to speed and write some new stuff as well because i've promised that this year is going to be the year for new motivated material. That's fantastic. That's that makes me very, very... You've made a 40-year-old gay man very happy. <laughs> I'm pleased about that. Steve, it's such an honour to talk to you today. Thank you so much. That's um, a pleasure. Good luck with the uh, with the comeback and, of course, with the Estonia Eurovision continuation. Yeah, who knows? Um, yeah, thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll see you very soon. Keep on doing what you're doing because, honestly, you've got a massive fan in me and there'll be loads of people out there who will be really, really excited to uh, to hear this interview. Well, that, that's brilliant. I, I'm very aware of the importance of, 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 of people who like my music. It really is. It sounds corny and cheesy, but, you know, but you do, you do uh, need people like yourselves championing uh, the music. Otherwise, it's, it, you know, you, it won't spread. And that's, that's just fantastic. So I'm very grateful for all as well and literally if there is anyone out there who is having a bit of a down day and you like your your fast tempo house music look for a motivate remix because that will put a smile on your face i guarantee you that is a no limit guarantee steve thanks once again uh speak to you very soon take care of yourself absolute pleasure thanks thanks steve bye So thank you to Steve. It was such an honour to speak to him. If you want to hear more about what's going on in all things Motivate, uh, then you can find Steve online on Twitter at Steve Rodway. You can also find us online on Instagram at NoLimPod. Go and join the conversation. But thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with 1997 in a few weeks. See you soon. Bye-bye. Get in touch on Instagram at NoLimPodcast.